Can you just imagine the level of excitement that must have been in the air as the apostles began to preach the message of the kingdom? As they had seen our Lord say, Upon this rock I will build my church. They had heard him preach the lesson, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now in Acts chapter 2, the gospel was preached. People were converted. 3,000 souls were added to the church. Now there's going to continue to be some growth. There's going to be continuing this excitement, but it's going to focus now on more individual contact. And Luke will record for us in Acts chapter 3 a great event and an opportunity that it opened. Let me begin by expressing the fact that the gospel is good news to a lost and dying world. The world, for the most part, does not know the truth. It is news to many. Once upon a time, in our country, many of us went to school and we heard the Bible read. Most of us lived in a community where people would attend the services of some kind of church and hear a gospel message. That kind of situation no longer exists. Those of us who believe in God and believe in the Bible are now in a minority. Those of us who want to listen to those grand lessons from the Bible are not those who go every week. You know, we're, we're in a small group of people. The majority of the world today is enjoying a time of day off. And they're in a situation of ignorance. They simply do not know what the good news is. In order to make disciples, they have to be taught. Listen to Jesus in John 6 and verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned of or from the Father comes to me. What if a person doesn't hear? What if a person doesn't learn? They can't come to the Father. Is thus the reason why Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Yes, we have to be an evangelistic people because there's a world out there that has not heard, does not know about Jesus and about what he did for them. Now here's the sad part. In that day of excitement in Acts chapter 2, even though there are 3,000 people who are baptized, there's a vast number of people who are still in their ignorance. And it was their ignorance that put Jesus on the cross. Brother Dale read to us just a few moments ago from Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I want to draw attention to verse 17. 
Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. They didn't know and you didn't know that he was the Christ. Because you didn't know that he was the Christ, you put him on a cross. You thought he was a charlatan. You thought he was a pretender. You thought he wasn't anybody special, but he was. This lesson will survey the event that led up to this indictment. What kind of things happened that led Peter to say to them, you crucified the Lord because you didn't know what you were doing? Well, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at ignorance and how it brings about sin. Sin in us. Then we're going to look at ignorance and what it takes to bring about salvation. And I can imagine you can already figure out what that will involve. Let's begin, first of all, with the background. We want to look and see if we can understand. I, I wish that I could be able to paint a picture for you so that you could put yourself into the events that are happening. But I want you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to try to see if we can fully grasp the events leading up to verse 17. Verses 1 and 2. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of of the temple which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple now let me draw attention first of all to where he's at and where Peter and John are going they're going to the temple they're going at three o'clock in the afternoon that's the ninth hour they are going there to pray I think it's interesting that if you look at the Muslims, they pray five times a day. You look at the Jews, they would pray three times a day. We have no specified number, but hopefully we are regularly approaching God and expressing our appreciation and our thanks to Him. But the temple was set aside as a place for people to be able to go and pray. What's sad is Matthew 21 is you find some people who are there, but they're not praying. And it says, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You're selling, you're buying, you're, you're carrying on business to the point where people cannot come here and pray. That's what God intended that place to be. They met a man here at the gate called beautiful. Now, I want you to think about the what he's meaning by the term beautiful. There are places that you and I may go and visit and we can be amazed at the beauty and the grandeur of it. You know, sometimes you can go to a beautiful building and they may have columns and uh, ornate decorations. Well, there's two possibilities. There's what's called the eastern gate, the gate that came into the city of Jerusalem, which was right in front of the temple, the beautiful gate. Or it could be the Nicanor gate. And 
For just a moment, let me show you. I took this photo a few years ago. The inside of the eastern gate. Yes, it's walled up. Those arches is where people would have entered. It's what it looked like about 100 years ago. And if you're on the outside, now it's also walled up where you can't enter. But those gates on the inside have beautiful columns and rock walls. And though it now may show the age of time, Nevertheless, it was a beautiful place. But I don't think that's what Peter is uh, having reference to here. I want you to listen to Josephus as he describes the Nicanor Gate. All the nine gates were completely covered with gold and silver, as were the post and lentils. But one outside the sanctuary was of Corinthian bronze, and far more valuable than those overlaid with silver and gold. Every gateway had double doors, each half being 45 feet high and 22 and a half feet wide. On the inner side, however, the gates was widened out, So, and on either hand there was a gate room, 45 feet square, shaped like a tower and over 60 feet high. Each room was supported by two pillars, 18 feet round. The other gate were all of the same size, but one beyond the Corinthian gate, opening out from the court of women on the east and facing the gate of the sanctuary, was much bigger. Its height was 75 feet that of the doors, 50, and the decorations more magnificent, the gold and the silver plates being extremely thick. Now, for just a moment, I want you to imagine. Josephus is describing gates and doors. Now, the gate was 75 feet tall. From the floor to the ceiling is exactly 23 feet. The gate was three times the height of this building. The doors were twice the height. Josephus goes on to say it took 20 men to open and close the doors. And Josephus tells us that these doors were so magnificent that they were overlaid with thicker gold and silver. You can just imagine how magnificent doors 22 and a half feet wide, 50 feet tall, overlaid with gold and silver. If you look at a model of it that's in Jerusalem today, you can see where the Nicanor Gate was located. And if you go in a little bit closer, it doesn't even do justice because you just see what something appears to be very small. But when you realize that that, those doors were 50 feet tall, it begins to just boggle your mind. Now I want you to think of the man who was sitting there. There was a man who was begging alms. His location was there on purpose. Why was he there? It wasn't like today where you have some kind of social security or disability system Here's a man, if he wanted to be able to have food to eat, he had to go beg. But he couldn't go there himself. The text says he was carried. And they laid him daily at this gate. So he could beg for alms. 
You can imagine today if you were wanting to be placed at a location where you might get the most, you'd want to go somewhere where people would be gathering. The temple's a great place. In fact, if you notice where the treasury is located, not far from there. So here's all these rich people coming in with their bags of, of silver and gold. And here's this man, he looks up and he can't walk. What are you going to do? Those people who've got riches would definitely want to be shown to be generous to a disabled man. And then you would have those people who come in who were really genuine and they're wanting to make their gifts and here's a man who cannot walk. What are you going to do? You're going to help him. He's been lame from his mother's birth. Our birth of his mother. Here's a man who's never walked. The man asked Peter and John for alms, gifts, but notice the way that Peter's going to respond. Silver and gold, we don't have any. I tells you a lot about how the apostles lived. We don't have anything to give you. We don't have money. But what we do have is the ability to heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And that man was able to stand up and walk. He was healed of a disease from birth. Now, I want you to imagine the excitement. Some of us here have some aches and pains this morning. What if, if you've got a problem of your shoulder, your knee, your back, your hand, your head, and all of a sudden someone was able to lay their hand on you and immediately remove it? Most of us would be excited and say, Oh, thank you, thank you. The text says this man held on to Peter and John while he was leaping and praising God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John and all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk. Peter said, don't look at us. We didn't do it. It was not by our power. It was not by our ability. They used this opportunity to point out they had killed the same Jesus that made this man well. Let that dawn on you for just, let it sink in for a second. The same Jesus they had killed gave this man the ability to walk. Listen to verses 13 through 16. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer be granted to you and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given us perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Everybody, you're looking and you're seeing a man healed 
by Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, that's the basis of all of this. But yet, it was because of ignorance. In fact, did that mean that they were guiltless because they did not know? Let me ask you a question. If you're on the highway and you're going down the road and it changes from 65 miles per hour to 55 miles per hour to 45 miles per hour to 35 miles per hour and you're just going right along and you're not paying attention, you're listening to the song on the radio and you're talking with your children in the car or maybe fussing with them and next thing you know you're going along, you're driving 65 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. Does that mean you're not guilty because you weren't paying attention? Try that with the police and see how it works out for you. Ignorance is not an excuse. Obviously not because Peter tells them to repent. In verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Well, let's talk about for just a little while ignorance and sin. The murder of Christ was because of ignorance. That's the correct term, murder. Murder is when you take someone's life by intent and you do so unlawfully or unjustly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, as Paul's preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, he says to them, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom of God which He ordained before the ages for our glory. Now listen carefully. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul, looking back, said nobody realized what they were doing. It didn't dawn upon them that they were killing the Christ. In Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's looking down at those people who are mocking Him and He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That always amazes me. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They don't understand it. But that ignorance didn't preclude their sin. I want you to listen to Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Is it possible that I may do something to you or you may do something to me and I may not be aware of it? Well, sure. That's the reason why you go and you show him his fault. You show him his sin. You sin against me. I have an obligation to go and show you what you have done. A lot of times people will say, oh, I didn't realize what I did. Or listen to Luke chapter 12, 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. Here's a man who didn't know what he was doing, but he did it anyway. Now here's the key issue. The devil 
promotes ignorance in the world. I've got to think in the United States of America in 2018, the devil must be reveling by saying, I've got prayer out of schools. I've got Bible reading out of schools. I have got it now where most of the people don't even listen to a gospel sermon anywhere at any time. They never pick up their Bibles. They never read it. And if I can keep them ignorant, I can keep them lost. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, not conforming yourself to your former lust as in your ignorance. Sometimes it really has to dawn on us that we are going the wrong direction. Someone has to show us that we've been making a mistake. You've been doing something wrong all along. And now you say, well, what am I going to do? 2 Peter 2 verse 11, the Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. You know what? We are ignorant of his devices sometimes. We let the devil persuade us to do things that are not right. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, it perhaps, God perhaps will grant to them repentance so that they may know the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. The devil wants you to remain ignorant. The devil doesn't want you to open your Bible. The devil doesn't want you to read it daily. The devil doesn't want you to pay attention to anything that comes from God and His will. That leads me to the next part of it. Ignorance and salvation. If I am ignorant of what God wants me to do, what will it take in order for me to be saved. I think you can figure that out. It does, you don't have to be too bright to figure that out. But let me put it to you in terms which I think are, will illustrate its seriousness. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he recognized that they were being persecuted by the people in their city and in their region. And he tells them in verse 7, And you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You who are troubled, those of you who are going through this difficult time, you're going to get rest when the Lord returns. But now listen in verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Do you mean that man out there who doesn't know the truth is going to be lost eternally? Yes. He will be lost. We're acting as if if he doesn't know, then no. No skin off his nose. No, it's, he's going to be lost. That's the reason why we have such a, a pressing obligation to preach the gospel to the whole world. Yes, that is our obligation. 
in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Therefore I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, and the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from life in God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That could be a description of today's society. People darkened understanding, no concern for matters of right versus wrong in sexual matters, just lewdness, greediness. What kind of world do you and I live in today? Turn on your television. You're going to see nothing more than just uh, filth. Or you're going to see people appealing to others' greed. Now here's the, the shocking part. Peter preached to people who were religious. I want you to notice where they're at. They're in the temple. They're on Solomon's porch. That's what he's told us. And these people are amazed. Look at what's happened. This man, we know him. He's been here at the gate every day. We know he's been lame all of his life. He's now up and running and praising God and holding on to Peter and John. But these are religious folks. Do you realize when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, there was exclusiveness of that? In the world in which he lived, there were so many people who were pursuing their brand of Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Herodians, Zealots. Oh, they were, everybody had their own little party, sort of like the religious world today. Jesus didn't ask for that from his people. He prayed for unity for them. Would you listen to Romans 10, 1 through 3? Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear the witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Oh. We look at the religious world today, and you've got people who worship God in all kinds of ways. We have people who are teaching all kinds of doctrines about how to be saved and how to remain saved. We've got people who will tell people who are in all kinds of immoral situations, you can continue to live as you are and do so with God's approval. You see, ignorance of religious people exists. Why does it exist? It exists because they're not consulting what God has said. What does it result in? They being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness and not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul would say, you want to know somebody who did that? I'm guilty. 
1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 and 13. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now listen, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy... Now listen carefully because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. He said, I was one of those ignorant folks. And I came to understand that Jesus was the Christ. Ignorance is no longer tolerated. Paul would say to the Athenians, truly the times of ignorance God once overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. It's only the truth that will make a man free. John 8, verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If they repented and were converted, then their sins could be blotted out. This younger generation doesn't know it, but there used to be stuff coming in a bottle that was black on the outside and white on the inside. may have been called liquid paper. may have been called white out. Those of us who lived a generation ago know that when you typed on a typewriter and you made a mistake, you had to go back and use whiteout, use liquid paper, cover it up, blot it out. David would say in Psalm 51, 9, he says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. They're going to be erased. They're going to be covered with the blood of the Lamb. This Jesus that made this man well is the same one they had been looking for. Notice with me verses 22 through 26, and then we're going to bring the lesson to an end. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for your prophet, liken to me for your brethren, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who does not hear that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. Yes, and from all the prophets, from Samuel even to those who follow, as many as have spoken also have foretold of these days, you are the sons of the prophets in your covenant which God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first God raised up his servant Jesus. That prophet that Moses spoke of, that's Jesus. You've been looking for him. He is the one who can save your soul. People sometimes become aware of the fact that they are a sinner. And they need to change their lives. They need to save their souls. Wise men say, I didn't know. Now I do know. I'll make some changes in my life. Foolish men will keep on doing what they've been doing. What will you do? We're going to sing the song of invitation. If you're not a Christian, there's only two things that I'd ask of you. If you know what you know, need to do this morning, do it. Don't put it off. If you don't know what you need to do, please, after the services, I'll be walking to the back. You come to the back and say, 
can I have a Bible study? And we will have one at the earliest convenience for you. I don't want you to choose a third option just to ignore it. If you know what you need to do, then do it. If you know that Jesus is the Christ, you know that you need to repent of your sins, you know that you need to be baptized, you come forward and we'll baptize you this morning. If you're a Christian and you look at your life and you say, you know what, I've been letting the devil lead me and I know that I'm wrong and I need to be restored, we'll pray with you. We're going to sing the song, Almost Persuaded. If you're fully persuaded, would you come as we together we stand and sing?